As a reminder, as a patron, you get access to ad-free episodes along with patron-only episodes. And if you subscribe just a little more a month, you get access to True Crime Fan Club Prime. A monthly episode is released based on the topic of your choosing. So head on over to patreon.com slash tcfcpodcast to learn more. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. Teenagers that kill aren't widespread. Murderous youngsters is a disturbing thought for most people. An even more troubling idea is that those teenagers, a sibling duo no less, would plot and carry out a plan to murder the only adult that ever protected them. Together, 19-year-old Nathaniel Gann and his 17-year-old sister Bray Hansen killed their stepfather, Timothy McNeil, in cold blood. They did it simply because Timothy told Bray that she would have to move out of his house when she turned 18, which she deemed unacceptable. Nathan didn't hesitate to help his sister with her deadly deed, agreeing to help kill the only man that they ever considered a father. Murder most certainly is not the typical response to teenage anger. Today's story is a tragic one about a pair of siblings who killed for no other motive than plain old selfishness. Okay, on to the show. Thursday, July 19, 2007, was a typical day in the Rolando neighborhood of San Diego, California. Despite the occasional cloudiness, it was a good day for Timothy McNeil. You see, the day before was his birthday, and he was going to be having a celebratory lunch with his stepdaughter, Bray. His actual birthday was spent with his new girlfriend, Kim, and this bothered Bray very much. She didn't want to share Timothy on his special day, but being left with no other choice, she opted to take him to lunch the following day. Bray didn't want to be replaced with a new woman in Timothy's life, and she could see this was slowly starting to happen, especially once it became clear Timothy was getting serious with Kim, who had officially become his girlfriend. Bray was not going to come in second place. Timothy became her stepdad when she was only five years old, and he wasn't just a stepfather, he was her dad. When her mother committed suicide the year before, Bray came to have Timothy all to herself. She enjoyed his undivided attention and therefore had a difficult time sharing Timothy's attention with Kim. But rather than sitting down for a conversation like most people would, Bray decided that her stepfather had to die. She asked her brother who went by Nathan to assist her. She wanted her brother to hire a hitman who would pretend to be an intruder and shoot Timothy. Without a moment's hesitation, Nathan agreed to help. Their plan was simple. Bray would withdraw money from two separate bank accounts, get a hold of her deceased mother's handgun, and place these items along with the house key into a box that she would leave outside on the porch for the hitman. The original idea was to carry this out on Timothy's birthday, but two things prevented this from happening. The first was that Nathan wasn't able to hire a hitman, and the second was that Timothy changed his plans with Bray at the last minute. Depending on which story is true, 
Nathan called Bray and told her that they were moving forward with their horrible deed, no matter what. He was going to drive back to San Diego from school in Arizona and was going to shoot Timothy himself. Nathan stopped at a Goodwill in Arizona and purchased all-black clothing and a mask. He drove without stopping through the night, arriving at the house sometime around 4 a.m. He entered the quiet home using the house key Bray left behind in the box and woke her up to let her know that he was there. Nathan then waited for his stepdad to get home from his girlfriend's to pick up Bray for lunch. Around 12.15, Timothy arrived home and came inside, shouting out to Bray that he was back, something he usually did. Timothy went downstairs to check some messages before leaving for lunch. As he walked into the basement, there was a gunman, dressed head to toe in black wearing a mask that completely concealed his face. The gunman was no stranger, though. It was his stepson, Nathan. Although whether Timothy figured this out or not will never be known. He ordered Timothy to sit down, and as he was doing so, Bray walked into the room. Nathan, posing as the gunman, instructed her to take some zip ties he brought with him and secure Timothy's hands behind his back. She did as she was told, and then Nathan put some zip ties onto Bray's wrist as well. Timothy asked to use the restroom and was allowed to do so after Nathan removed Bray's restraints, telling her to pull Timothy's pants down. She did, and immediately her wrists were secured again. She was moved into the laundry room and sat against a wall and told to look away. Nathan walked away. Once again, depending on whose story is true, Nathan went back into the game room down in the basement. He was trying to let Timothy use the bathroom, and the zip ties came loose enough for Timothy to start struggling with Nathan, and the gun went off. Nathan shot Timothy, striking him in the hip, and he fell. Nathan shot him again, this time hitting him in the face. There were two more shots, one that went into Timothy's shoulder and landed in his elbow, and the final kill shot that went into the back of his skull. Then Nathan ran, ditching the gun outside on the porch and the face mask, which he tossed way up into a tree. His truck was parked just up the road, so escape was quick and unhindered. What Nathan didn't plan on was witnesses from the neighborhood would see him and his truck and would be able to identify him later to the police. Meanwhile, Bray was back in the laundry room and managed to get a phone dialing 911 with her tongue, as she would later describe to the police. She was hysterical as she reported a burglary, saying the gunman took her watch and phone and shot her stepdad, then fled. Police arrived right away, and Bray appeared to be a genuinely traumatized victim and was treated as such. Investigators were securing the scene and gathering evidence, which was everywhere. They found the murder weapon outside on the back porch, along with the ski mask the gunman wore, both of which presumably were loaded with DNA. Police interviewed neighbors and obtained witness statements, but they couldn't help but notice there was no forced entry. Another notable thing was that it was uncommon for a burglar to shoot someone over merely a ring and a cell phone. There was also nothing else in the home that was disturbed or stolen. Bray was checked out medically and taken to the police station where she provided a statement to police and then was taken to her step-aunt and uncle, Bonnie and Richard McNeil's house. However, after she was dropped off there, 
the police needed some photos of the marks on Bray's wrist from the zip ties, so they came back. It was during this interview that she made her biggest mistake, because as she was recounting her story for police yet again, she slipped, telling the investigator that Timothy asked Nathan why he was doing this. Of course, the police were immediately tuned in and suspicious when they heard this name dropped. The name was never mentioned in conjunction with the murders before that statement. Furthermore, they knew she had a brother named Nathaniel that went by Nathan. Bray tried to cover her mistake. She said that Timothy did say Nathan, but it couldn't be her brother because he was away at school in Arizona. Despite their strong suspicions, police left Bray with her family. Later on that evening, she was discussing her traumatic experience with her cousin Shelley. The local news was covering the situation on the TV, which prompted Shelley to pull up a sketch of the gunman that she found on social media, which she showed to Bray, who commented that some of the facial features were not right. This statement struck a chord to her cousin, who overheard the remark. She knew that Bray had previously said the gunman had a ski mask on, and she was unable to see any part of his face. Shelley was uneasy with this information, enough so that she told her parents and then called the detectives on the case. The police came back to re-interview Bray to clarify several inconsistencies. Some of the things that Bray was saying weren't quite adding up. Knowing they had her caught, the police arrested Bray at approximately 10.45 p.m. Once she arrived at the station, she gave a full confession, implicating her brother as her accomplice. Nathan Gann was arrested on July 20th in Arizona. What's your full name? Nathaniel Marcus Gann. What's your sister's name? Like that, uh, Bray. This is the most important hour of your entire life. And you know what else? We told Bray the same thing. She made the right decision. She told us everything. Every single living and breathing detail. Don't let your little sister take the whole rap for this. Tell us your side of the story. Tell us your side of the story. Like what the hell? Like your, your little sister killed your dad? Your little I sister, you're gonna let her? I didn't see anything. You're gonna let her out cry for this whole thing? I didn't do anything though. Your sister's gonna fall for this whole thing because you won't man up and act like the big brother you're supposed to act like. I didn't do anything. How'd you feel, Nathan, when he went down? You, you may not feel it yet, but it's physically, you're looking relieved because you've not been able to express to anybody your feelings about what happened. I just didn't want to do better than the year. I didn't want to lose my daughter. You're going to be okay, Nathan. I think God's in You think you should die, you said? Why? <laughs> Deserve it, I guess. Why? Difficult <laughs> situations. I don't even know if I think I deserve to even be a person anymore. Wow. Are you saying that you didn't mean to kill him? angry, but no. You don't want him to die? I didn't want him to die. I wanted him to be scared. I wanted him 
be honest, you don't want to do it. So honestly, you feel like take me seriously for a change. What happened after the first bullet? I just know. I panicked. And he's bleeding and hurting. Yeah. And then just dying in front of me. And I and it's just really you kill me. And I was just like No. That's what he said to you. He said you killed me. Just the one, sir. I don't know. I don't know. I remember him saying it like a thousand times. Yeah. Just, you killed me. You killed me. Why did you kill me? I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. If you are practicing social distancing, which means reducing unnecessary trips out and trying to avoid sold-out grocery stores, then check out Sunbasket. It's a perfect and delicious solution for the times we're living in. With that in mind, I picked out some fun meals and snacks for me and my family to munch on. I'm so excited to get my basket, and I will follow up with what I get when I get it. They make it easy and convenient with everything pre-portioned and ready to prep and cook, which makes my life a thousand times easier. You can enjoy a dinner full of organic produce and clean ingredients in as little as 15 minutes, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. And Sunbasket facilities have the highest levels of food and employee safety. They are reinforcing strict adherence to their existing standard operating procedures and increasing sanitation frequency in their distribution centers in order to protect you and your family. Right now, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go right now to sunbasket.com slash TCFCP and enter promo code TCFCP at checkout. That's sunbasket.com slash TCFCP and enter promo code TCFCP at checkout for $35 off your order. On January 18, 2008, the formal document, which is called, quote, The Information, was filed, charging Nathan and Bray with first-degree murder with a special circumstance of lying in wait, which means that the offender sat and waited for the unsuspecting victim to attack. For Bray, there was also a charge of being vicariously armed because she provided the murder weapon to Nathan. They both filed motions in court to have their case separated so they would not have simultaneous trials. However, the judge denied their motions as unnecessary because on October 9th, the district attorney announced that the pair would face trial separately. Bray requested and was granted a continuance. Jury selection and the first trial for Nathan commenced on November 5, 2008. There were seven days of testimony with deliberations starting on the 18th, but on the 20th, the jury said that they absolutely could not agree and were deadlocked, so a mistrial was called. The district attorney filed a new motion with the court on December 23, 2008 for the two cases to be rejoined. The motion was granted. Nathan and Bray objected to the joint trial, but both were overruled. This time, the judge decided that there would only be one trial, but each defendant would have a separate jury. On March 16, 2009, the jury selected for Bray's trial started and was finished on the 17th. Nathan's jury selection began on the 18th and was completed that same day. 
The joint trials officially began on Monday, March 23, 2009. The trial was lengthy and many witnesses were called, especially during Nathan's defense portion. The jury for Bray only heard parts of the case prevented by Nathan's public defender. Her court-appointed attorney didn't offer much of a defense and chose to keep a definitive finger pointed straight at her brother, Nathan. Wednesday, April 15, 2009, Nathaniel Gann was found guilty of first-degree murder with no special circumstance for lying in wait. On April 16th, Bray Hansen was found guilty of first-degree murder with both of the special conditions for lying in wait and being vicariously armed. On June 19th, Nathan filed a motion for a retrial, which was denied, and he was immediately sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Bray also filed a motion for retrial, which, too, was dismissed. Her sentence was life in prison, and she would have no chance for parole. However, the judge struck the vicariously armed charged on his motion without much in the way of an explanation. Both of the siblings appealed their sentences and they were both denied. But after a 2012 United States Supreme Court decision ruled that life without parole sentences for juveniles may be cruel and unusual punishment, Bray obtained an appellate attorney to request another review of her case, which was granted. This time, she was victorious in her appeal and she won the right to a new sentence. On Monday, July 13, 2015, Bray Hansen was resentenced to 26 years to life in prison, thereby giving her the opportunity for parole in the future. The judge, Frederick Link, was the same judge that presided over the original trial. He reviewed the mitigating factors such as her age at the time of the murder. She was only 17, coupled with the abuse that she suffered by her mother until her ultimate suicide in 2006. Bray was also displaying exemplary behavior while in prison. She was trying to lead a better life, and she was remorseful. In the NBC San Diego News.com article published on July 13th by R. Stickney and Chris Chan titled, Woman Who Killed Stepfather Gets New Sentence, Judge Frederick Link stated that in his 34 years of being a judge, he never put more thought into a case than this one. What this all means is that Bray will have the opportunity one day to be released from prison. While it's highly unlikely that she would ever be paroled on her first chance, if she can show rehabilitation and change, she may just get that chance sooner or later. It's possible that given her very young age, coupled with the fact that she didn't pull the trigger, that Bray will be given much consideration when the time comes for her first and subsequent parole interviews. Family members of Timothy will have the opportunity to confer with the Department of Corrections before parole is granted. The family can provide feedback if they agree with a favorable parole decision. However, the parole board makes the final decision whether to grant parole or not. Nathaniel Gann currently resides in the Valley State Prison in Chowchilla, California. His first date of parole eligibility will be June of 2028. You may be thinking that seems much too soon, and you'd be correct. According to the CA.gov website, the CDCR Inmate Locator, Public Inmate Locator System Parole Term section states, Inmates may earn credits for participating in rehabilitative programming, which may move their parole-eligible dates to an earlier date. Parole-eligible dates may also change based on a variety of other reasons, including court orders, changes in the law, and routine audits. 
In December of 2019, he, along with 14 other co-complainants, filed an action against the prison, alleging adverse conditions of confinement, as noted in the casetext.com order directing clerk to send all 15 plaintiffs a civil rights complaint form. The complaint was very unspecific, and this January 2020 order we just cited determined that each of the complainants must file civil actions that clarify what rights were violated, how they were violated, and they must present their complaints separately. What is probably the most shocking part of this devastating story is that both Nathan and Bray were not the kind of kids you'd expect to ever do something like this. Both of them were honor students, Nathan attending the University of Arizona and Bray attending high school in San Diego. Nathan considered himself something of a computer nerd, and just before the killing, Bray participated in a church mission in Puerto Rico. When they were children, Nathan was seven and Bray was five. Their mother, Doreen Hansen, met Timothy McNeil. The elder two began dating, and before long they married, and Timothy indeed became a father to the children. Timothy had a daughter from a previous marriage named Erin McNeil. She embraced Nathan and Bray as her siblings and expressed her disappointment to Bray at sentencing, stopping short of hating her. Doreen was very abusive to her children, and their life with Timothy was a little bit of a reprieve. However, Doreen couldn't control herself, and for Nathan, she was particularly bad, beating him frequently and even threatening to kill him. Timothy tried to intervene when possible, also going so far as to arrange for 12-year-old Nathan to live with his grandmother in Arizona, just to get away from her torture. While living with his grandma, Nathan did so much better and was a completely different boy, one who loved school and had plans for his future. Bray stayed with her mom and Timothy, and though her mom didn't stop picking on her altogether, Bray did well in school and showed a genuine interest in student government. Since Timothy was a successful defense attorney, Bray considered the same career path, going to law school and maybe even becoming a judge. There came a time, though, when Bray couldn't handle her mother's abuse any longer, and she, too, moved to Arizona to live with her grandmother there. But when Doreen's depression overcame her, she called Bray saying she was going to kill herself and asked her to come back. Doreen did kill herself, but it wasn't until after that happened that Bray moved back to San Diego and it was just her and Timothy living alone for months. They were some of the best months of her life, which is why she became overcome with jealousy and rage, thinking she would be losing Timothy to another woman. Timothy McNeil was only 63 years old when he was senselessly murdered. He made a good living as a criminal defense attorney, living in the modest neighborhood of Rolando, which is a suburb of San Diego. He was born on July 18, 1944, in Montreal, Canada and then later moved to San Diego, California, where he graduated from Helix High School in 1962. He pursued a degree at San Diego State University and then law school at the Hastings College of Law. Shortly after graduating from law school, he married Barbara Lamb in 1968. They had two daughters together, Kelly and Erin, although Kelly sadly passed away shortly after her birth. They were married approximately 25 years before they divorced. Timothy met the school teacher Doreen Hansen, and they got married in April 2001. His first wife, Barbara, passed away in January of 2006 from congestive heart failure, and his second wife died in June of 2006 by suicide. In a horrible turn of events, he was dead only a little over a year later. 
Timothy was loved by so many and was thought of as generous and kind to all that knew and loved him. But that very love he showered on all that he knew became a threat to the two children whom he loved as his very own once a new woman entered the picture. Timothy probably would not have cut Nathan and Bray out of his life. Perhaps he only wanted to start sharing a new experience with a new woman, with no intention of ever severing ties with the children, who many believed he saved from their abusive mother. Unfortunately, the truth will always be unknown, because Timothy McNeil's life was cut too short when he was taken from this world on the day after his 63rd birthday. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and positively review the show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us out. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was written by Marie Cole, researched and edited by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. And I'm your host, Lainey. <laughs>